Section Zero of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Alistair. Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899. By Joseph Robert Fisher. Preface the acute constitutional crisis that has prevailed in Finland since the issue of the Tsar's Manifesto in February last, and the interest taken in the question by the press in England and America, have encouraged me to believe that a book on the subject, written from personal knowledge and as the result of local investigation, would find readers on both sides of the Atlantic. The history of this little country in the Baltic, so often regarded as simply a part of Russia, is an interesting one but English readers have not had much opportunity of becoming acquainted with it. Of recent years, one or two ladies have written bright and readable sketches of travel in Finland, but these writers could naturally devote but little space to the political and historical questions that have now come to the front. English translations were issued several years ago of three Finnish books, Finland in the 19th century, edited by a committee in Helsingfors, Senator Mechelen's Precy of Constitutional Law, and Professor Danielson's reply to M. Auden, but these are all, I fear, out of print. The object I have kept before me in writing this book has been to present the case of Finland in the briefest and clearest language, and not in any sense to make an attack on Russia. That certain Russian officials have determined, if they are not checked, to destroy the Finnish constitution is a fact beyond dispute but the Grand Duchy has not been without expressions of sympathy from very influential quarters in Russia, and there can be little doubt that if the present Tsar knew the facts, he would revert to the wise policy of his ancestors and abandon the dangerous adventure into which he has been led by the intolerant apostles of unification. Unhappily, few Russians have studied the question for themselves. They are at the mercy of a class of controversialists who are sufficiently characterised by a writer in Prince Tomsky's paper, the St. Petersburg Venomosti, whose pungent remarks on the jackal press I have ventured to quote in the final chapter. As a foreigner, I claim no right to dictate or to assume the role of a moral censor in other people's affairs. My desire is rather to convince all concerned that the true interests of Russia, not less than of Finland, lie in the strict observance of the policy and the pledges of the former Tsars. As regards authorities, I have relied chiefly on the numerous books and documents that are available to all investigators. Senator L. Mechelen's Staatsrecht des Großfürstentums Finland, published in Markwitzen's Handbuch des Offenlichen Rechts, Freiburg, 1889, gives a complete outline of the Finnish constitution in its practical working. The leading Russian controversialist is M. K. Auden, whose book The Subjugation of Finland two volumes, St. Petersburg, 1889, was in its origin a reply to Dr. Mechelen. This in turn elicited Finland's Furning Medreiskerikit by Professor J. R. Danielson, Helsingfors, 1891, which holds the field, having, with a wealth of historical knowledge and controversial skill, practically annihilated the Russian writer, who has attempted no serious defence. Professor Hermansen's Finland Staatsratsliga Stalning is also an indispensable authority on the constitutional question. Of historical authorities, the most modern and comprehensive is Professor M. G. Scheibergsen, whose Finland's Historia, Helsingfors, two volumes, 1887-1889, will be found more accessible to most readers in the German version by Fritz Arnheim, in Perth's series of Geschichte der Europäischen Staaten. Gotha, 1896. All statistical facts are admirably given in the official yearbook, Statistik Arschbuch für Finland, und given auf Statistika Central Bayern. I have also to acknowledge the personal assistance rendered me in my inquiries by many friends in Helsingfors. A considerable number of documents had to be cited at length in the text, as they are not otherwise accessible to English readers, but they have, I hope, been kept within reasonable limits. Chapters 14 and 15 are devoted to a summary of the more important passages 
In the reply of the estates to the Tsar's proposals, Finland standers under the Nigas far e anledning of Hans Kedschelige Magistats Nardga Propositioner and the accompanying documents. So far as possible, the form and the wording of the original documents have been retained in this condensed version. The reply and the appendices are necessarily couched in somewhat technical and crabbed phraseology, which no doubt reflects itself in the summary. But this is, perhaps, not altogether a disadvantage when the object is to reproduce, so far as possible, the spirit of the original. The reply naturally covers some of the ground previously touched on in other chapters, but where the choice lay between repetition and an undue number of cross-references, I have not hesitated to repeat statements or arguments when I considered it necessary for clearness. J.R.F. London, November 1899 End of section zero. Section one of Finland and the Tsars, eighteen o nine to eighteen ninety nine, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter one: Land and People. Finland governs itself were the words with which the first Nicholas was accustomed to wave aside the suggestions of officials in whose eyes the constitutional government of the Grand Duchy was a standing offence against the sacred principles of autocracy. Thanks to this wise policy, persisted in by successive emperors for the best part of the century, Finland has till recently made itself very little heard of since its union with Russia. Content with its distinction as the most orderly and most progressive of all the Tsar's dominions, it has shown no desire to attract the attention of Western Europe, where, indeed, its advanced civilization was so little understood that to many it simply presented itself as another Lapland, and the venturous traveller to Suomenmaa was likely to be asked whether he would not have to live in huts on the snow and travel in reindeer sledges. Finland, for its own part, would have been only too glad to remain aloof from the wrangle of European politics. The country had been for centuries the cockpit in which the struggle for the supremacy between Russia and Sweden was fought out. And rest only came when the Scandinavian power definitely retired from the contest. The incapacity or the treachery of Sweden's later rulers had succeeded in alienating Finland so completely that the acceptance of Tsar Alexander as Grand Duke at the Diet of Borga was unanimous. His sympathetic and cordial demeanour and the unequivocal nature of the reiterated pledges by which he recognised and confirmed for all time the ancient constitutional rights of his new subjects, left no room for suspicion. Even by the absolute Nicholas, who had no sympathy with the early aspirations of his brother, these pledges were held sacred, and he checked the unifiers, who even then would have treated Finland as a Russian province. Of the steps by which the second Alexander made himself the idol of the Finnish people, it is unnecessary to speak here. They will be discussed in their proper place. He enabled the Diet to realise and translate into positive Finnish law points that had been before, perhaps, disputable. And with his reign began that extraordinary social, educational and industrial development, which in spite of almost insuperable natural drawbacks, has placed the little nation well in advance of any other within the same degrees of latitude. And the gain has been not less great for the Empire than for the Grand Duchy. Although in their own little world of politics, the rivalry between Fenoman and Svegelman has now and again run keen and high. Finland never produced in the Diet or out of it a conspirator or an agitator against Russia. It provided instead generals for her armies and admirals for her fleet, and in the worst moments of war, or in the still more desperate ten years' combat with terrorism, Russia never needed to detach a soldier or a spy for special service in Finland. The Finnish people then, may well claim that they have faithfully kept their part of the fundamental compact made with the Tsars. And if, after ninety years, they now find themselves attacked in the Russian press as rebels and conspirators, and plunged in a struggle for their political existence, they have a good right to claim that the fault is not theirs. Their crime has been that Finland and Finland's constitution stand in the way of the pan-Slavonic ideal. One Russia, one faith, one law, one tongue. And to the fanatical nationalist, 
expansion and unification are more sacred things than a czar's word. That there is today a Finnish question is, it is firmly believed in that country, owing to no ill will on the part of the present emperor, but simply to the fact that the second Nicholas has shown himself less firm in resisting official pressure than his great-grandfather. The union of Finland with Russia, and the events that have followed under the five czars, will be discussed in subsequent chapters, but perhaps something should first be said of the people and of their country, whose story is so interesting and so little known. Finnish tribes seem at one time to have been the dominant race in what is now Russia, and indeed much further west, but they were like the Celts, unfortunate in never being able to permanently establish an independent and united state, capable of resisting pressure from Teuton or Slav or Turk. The Magyars, it is true, were of Finno-Ugrian origin, and so probably were the Bulgars, but one can hardly regard Hungary and Bulgaria of today as Finnish states. In the north and northeast of Russia, there are still Finnish tribes little, if at all, removed from the nomadic stage. All through the empire there are millions of them who have become Russians. The late M. de Catrophagius de Bray, in his Res Prussienne, discovers marked Finnish traces in East Prussia, whilst the so-called Baltic provinces are largely inhabited by Finns who were first Teutonized and are now in the process of Russification. On the White Sea there is a tribe of Finnish origin, whom the Finns of Finland speak of as Tartars. In the southeast of Europe there are Turkish-speaking peoples, whom the Russians call Turks, but who present traces of Finnish origin. It was only on the harsh soil of the country today known as Finland, and under the mild rule of Sweden, that the Suomi, as they called themselves, Finns they were called by their neighbours, found a resting place where their race and their language could strike firm root. The Vikings had no doubt long before made settlements among the islands, and had raided the coast of Finland. But the first beginning of regular conquest was towards the middle of the 12th century, when King Eric, saint and martyr, organised a crusade to convert the heathen Finns, and to annex their territory to Sweden. Expansion by grace of the church was the normal method in those days. Henry of Anjou was negotiating at Rome for the bull authorising his annexation of Ireland at about the time when Eric of Sweden was gaining a foothold across the Gulf of Bothnia, and it is in keeping with the cosmopolitan character of medieval Christianity that King Eric's right-hand man in the crusade was Bishop Henry of Uppsala, an Englishman by birth, who laid down his life in the work, and who is Finland's patron saint to this day. The cathedral at Orbo, the ancient capital, and still the ecclesiastical capital of the country, is dedicated to St. Henry and the great summer and winter fairs are held on the days associated with his death, and with the transfer of his body from Nausus to Orbor. There can be no doubt that the conquest by Sweden was the best thing that could have happened to the Finns. They were a mere handful, living in a country without natural frontiers or defences, and remote from the currents of European civilization. As the neighbouring states grew, Finland was bound to be absorbed, and Russian domination at that time would probably have resulted in the total extinction of the half-developed race. The Swedes, on the other hand, were at a comparatively advanced stage of culture, and yet were not sufficiently numerous to swamp the Finns altogether. The Swedish settlements quickly spread along the coast, eastward and northward from Orbor, and although the settlers probably troubled themselves little about the primitive inhabitants of the country, the settlements became centres of trade and industry, and brought to the country, along with Christianity, the firmly established Scandinavian principles of self-government and personal and civil liberty. The Finns clung obstinately and successfully to their nationality and their language, to their songs and their folklore, but in their social and political organisation, as in their religion, they became virtually a branch of the Scandinavian family. As has been said, Finland has had more than its share of war. Before the end of the 12th century, Orbo was sacked and burnt by the Russians. And even so late as the Crimean War, a series of useless and cruel raids on the Finnish coast were carried out by the Allied Baltic Fleet. Up till the end of the 18th century, scarcely a generation passed without some portion of the country being swept with fire and sword in the struggle between Swede and Russian and Dane for the mastery of the Baltic. Nor does the land itself possess resources or natural advantages 
likely to encourage the inhabitants to bear up against such a series of misfortunes. And yet the nation grew, and developed a character and a civilization that placed it by no means last among the peoples of Europe. As a Finnish writer justly claims, the culture of Finland represents in its own way as striking a triumph of patience and energy over natural forces as any that mankind has ever won, and shows how much a vigorous nation can endure without losing its individuality. To the traveller, the country is a charming and interesting one, whether in summer or winter. But for the peasant, the man with the hoe, the struggle is a hard one. Less than one acre in thirty of the surface of the country is arable. A somewhat larger amount is fit for grazing, and the rest is lake, morass, rock and forest. Finland is, in fact, a great granite plateau, slowly rising out of the sea, and still waterlogged over a great portion of its surface. The prevalence of lake and torrent and wildland make it an ideal country for the sportsman, but soil and climate too often combine to blight the hopes of the farmer. Winter lasts for half the year, the country is covered deep in snow, and the lakes and fields are hard as a stone, while the coasts are ice-bound for miles out to sea. The summer is short and warm, but even in July and August the frost is not far off and sometimes in a single night the half-ripe grain is destroyed and the harvest lost. Yet, such is the tenacity and vigour of the people that, during the last two generations especially, the moral and material progress of Finland has been extraordinary. The population increases rapidly, and education, industries, trade and commerce have more than kept pace with the increase. Education is not compulsory, but the absence of it is such a discredit, and emulation is so keen, that it is practically universal. Even in the backward days, when the schools were few, the clergy made illiteracy a bar to confirmation, and now that there are good schools in even the most remote parishes, few of the present generation grow up untaught. There is quite a respectable native literature, and as newspaper readers the young Finns can be compared only to the Americans. In 1850 there were not a dozen newspapers in the country, now there are over 200, a very high proportion in a small and scattered population of two and a half millions. Swedish is the language of the towns and of the cultured classes, and was for long the only language recognised, but the bulk of the country people, who constitute 90% of the population, have always spoken Finnish and the languages are now on a complete equality in school and church and state. The majority of the newspapers appear in Finnish, and even in Helsingfors, the modern capital, Finnish is the language of half the inhabitants. The struggle between Fenoman and Svekoman, which turned chiefly on this question of language, was a long and bitter one, almost as bitter as that now going on between Germans and Czechs in Bohemia, but it seems to have left no permanent trace except in the promotion of education. Each side was so keen to prove the advantage of its own language that the building of schools, the writing of books, and the starting of newspapers received a tremendous impetus, which has not yet spent itself. Agricultural schools, dairy schools, navigation schools, commercial schools, and schools for manual education of all kinds abound, and the system of teaching is excellent. Art and art industries are highly developed, the latter owing much to the establishment of the Sloyd system of education, which was introduced 30 years ago and has since gone all over the world. There are 47 lyceums, or secondary schools, with 7,000 pupils, the pupils and teachers being Finnish-speaking and Swedish-speaking in about equal numbers. At the top of the educational system stands the well-equipped University of Helsingfors, with 2,000 students, over 200 of whom are girls, and a teaching staff of over 100 professors and docents. The commercial tariffs in force in Finland are not so exclusive as those of Russia, but they constitute a serious check on commerce, and recent messages from St. Petersburg give rise to the fear that they will be increased rather than lowered, for this is one of the matters in which Finland is not self-governing. Nevertheless, the growth of commerce has been extraordinarily rapid, Exports and imports in 1886 amounted to 176 million marks, 
1896 to over 331 million. Imports alone, which were 172 million marks three years ago, rose to 202 million in 1897 and to 225 million in 1898, while exports also showed a steady improvement. In 1886, England stood only third in the list of exports and imports, with a total trade of 25 million marks, Russia coming first with 81 million, and Germany second with 29 million. In 1896, England had secured the second place with 71 million marks, whilst Germany had arisen to 69 million, and Russia to 103 million. And the returns for 1897, the latest available, show that the same order was maintained, with totals of 80 million, 78 million, and 121 million respectively. British farmers will perhaps welcome with mixed feelings this rapid growth of trade, which as regards exports consists largely of dairy products and foodstuffs of various sorts for the British market, but at any rate, it shows the business capacity and industry of the people of Finland. In 1886, the export of these various foodstuffs was to the value of some 14 million marks, of which England took but little. In 1896, it had risen to close to 40 million marks, of which England took about half. Even more important for Finland is her wood industry. In 1886, she exported wood and wood products to the value of 41 million marks, and in 1896, to the value of 86 million marks. These two items, in fact, account for three-fourths of all the exports. As regards imports, Finland has always, owing to her climate, had to look abroad for many of the necessaries of life. But there is also a growing import of raw materials, which speaks well for the development of her manufactures. There are few better tests of material progress than the consumption of sugar, and the imports of that article in the last three years have been 16 million, 24 million, and 32 million kilograms respectively. While breadstuffs, which were procured abroad to the amount of 181 million kilograms in 1896 and 218 million in 1897, fell to 212 million in 1898 in consequence of an exceptionally good harvest. Of the raw materials for textile manufacturers, there were imported in 1896 9 million kilograms and in 1897 11 million kilograms. The import of pig iron for the same two years was 13 million and 20 million kilograms respectively, and of coal 95 million and 175 million kilograms. Finally, the general official summary of industries of all kinds shows that whereas there were in 1886 27,921 workers employed in 2,910 establishments on an output valued at over 101 million marks. The corresponding figures in 1896 were 73,010, 7,261, and 218 million. Figures are not attractive to most readers, and so I have given only a few as samples, and these in the most summary form but they will serve to show that on the material side, Finland is not lagging behind the rest of Europe. In some respects, indeed, her progress resembles rather that of a Western community in America than that of an old-fashioned European nation. The towns, too, have a rather American air, with their broad straight streets set at right angles, and the mixture of small wooden shanties with the most elaborate modern structures in stone. Helsingfors, with 77,000 inhabitants, has streets and buildings superior to those of most European cities of much larger size, and the artistic spirit of the people lends itself to decoration in both public and private buildings. There is a tendency in these latter days, when great empires count their subjects by the scores of millions and their armies by the million, to imagine that there is no place in Europe for a little people that counts only 2.5 million but I think it will be admitted that a country that has shown such perseverance under difficulties and such extraordinary capacity for industrial development when the opportunity offered can never be an altogether negligible quantity. Sweden was a European power exercising widespread influence during the Thirty Years' War, 
with a population, Finland included, considerably less than that of Finland today. Finland is more populous than either the kindred states of Norway or Denmark, states which yet manage to make some show in the world. And Europe should not need to be reminded that the great elector brought Prussia to the front when her people numbered only 1.5 million, or that the greater Frederick began his career with less than 2.5 million subjects at his back. Finland's ambitions do not lie in the direction of expansion or of conquest, but her people have earned the right to be allowed to develop in their own way. Few nations have suffered so much, and so undeservedly, for Finland itself has never made war or invaded a neighbour, nor has it been a turbulent or an unruly state, calling for discipline or conquest from others more powerful and more progressive. It has managed its own affairs in orderly, law-abiding fashion, obeying its rulers and insisting on its rulers obeying the law. Such a state ought not to be wiped out of existence without at least a hearing. It was the dream of an emperor of Russia at the beginning of the century that Europe should no longer be governed by force but by righteousness, mercy and peace. And, although the latter end of that monarch himself and of his holy alliance was not all that this lofty ideal might have inspired, it was an experiment that was worth failing in. The present state of Europe and of Russia presents a sardonic commentary on the hopes of Alexander I. But only the other day it was again a Russian emperor who suggested what would, he hoped, prove, by the help of God, a happy presage for the century that is about to open. And he asked all the world to join him in a corporate consecration of the principles of equity and right on which rest the security of states and the welfare of peoples. There is an excellent Irish proverb which has, no doubt, its counterpart among a people so rich in proverbs as the Slavs. What you blame in others, amend in yourself. Nicholas II has now, in his own person, an opportunity of undoing an act against equity and right, and of thus restoring security to a state and welfare to a people whom he holds in the hollow of his hand, and the world is watching for the result. End of section one. Section two of Finland and the Tsars, 1809 to 1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter two, The Approach of Russia. 1772-1808 Alexander Paulovich was far from the first of the rulers of Russia to desire the detachment of Finland from Sweden. It is water I want, not land, was the cry of Peter the Great, and once he had fixed his capital at the mouth of the Neva, the control of the Gulf of Finland was sooner or later a necessity. The madness of Charles Twelfth made it easy for Peter to extend his water frontier from the Neva to the Duna, but although his armies had occupied and administered Finland for several years, he does not seem to have felt himself strong enough at the peace of Nystad to secure the northern shore of the Gulf as well as the southern. Although shorn of half its might by the folly of his successors, the kingdom which Gustavus Adolphus had built up was still a comparatively powerful state, and the determined resistance which had been offered on more than one occasion by the scanty and ill-organised population of Finland even when deserted by Sweden, was sufficient to show that the forcible retention of the Grand Duchy would render it a source of weakness, rather than of strength, to the empire. Consequently, only a small strip of territory was annexed, and it is a curious fact from this time forward successive rulers of Russia, although never relaxing their determination to detach Finland from Swedish influence, were profuse in their assurances that, so far from desiring to annex or incorporate that country, its independence would be forever guaranteed under the protection of Russia. This fact is of vital importance in view of the attempt that has been made of late years by Russian writers to represent Alexander's conquest of Finland as simply the addition of a province to the Russian Empire. They cannot deny, indeed, that certain pledges were given, but they add that Alexander was a sentimental monarch, with vague constitutional leanings imbibed from La Harpe, his republican tutor, and even if he uttered some unfortunate phrases about constitutional liberty, they were only, as M. Auden puts it, a tribute paid to the age. 
a passing reference, suitable to the circumstances and the occasion. Whatever were the weaknesses of Alexander, if it is, in the eyes of Russian controversialists, to be accounted a weakness for a Tsar to keep his solemn and reiterated pledges, no one is likely to attribute sentimentality or a weak regard for the conventions of the age to Elizabeth Petrovna or to the great Catherine, yet each of these powerful sovereigns has left on record utterances with regard to Finnish liberty quite as unmistakable as those of Alexander I. Peter's daughter Elizabeth, when she came to the throne in 1741, found Russia and Sweden at war, as usual, and in the following year she issued a manifesto to the Finnish people, in which the quarrelsome and aggressive policy of Sweden was contrasted with that of Russia, whose only desire was to live in peace and friendship with her neighbours. The Empress assured the Finns that she did not covet a foot of their territory, but was willing, if her armies were not opposed, to free Finland from the power and jurisdiction of Sweden, and erect it into an independent state, a barrier frontier between Russia and Sweden, enjoying its own constitution with all the rights, privileges and liberties arising therefrom. This manifesto, which was circulated broadcast in Swedish, Finnish and German, produced no visible effect at the time, although doubtless some of the unhappy people seeing no prospect for their country but repeated devastation by the rival armies, began to look to Russia as their future protector. The Peace of Orbor in 1743 left Finland Swedish, but shorn of the province of Viborg, which was annexed to Russia. The next reign, Peter III hardly counts, found the neighbours at war again, and Finland still in the position of the toad under the harrow. But by this time a serious conspiracy had been set on foot to secure independence under Russian protection. Several Finnish-Swedish officers having entered into correspondence with the Empress Catherine. This was, of course, treason, but the miseries of the country, under a series of incapable Holstein Gortop kings, had rendered the leading Finlanders desperate, and history will probably judge the action of Sprengtporten and his fellow conspirators as lightly as it judges that of the English Whigs, who, a century before, had entered into correspondence with William of Orange, while still owing allegiance to a Stuart king. Mr. Freeman assumes, and no doubt correctly, that the Swedish nobility, who were at that time smarting under the recent loss of their privileges, thought more of the erection of an aristocratic state under Russian protection, in which they should be supreme, than of securing the popular liberties in Finland. It must be admitted, however, that Sprengtporten, whatever his original motives may have been, stood out sturdily and successfully at the critical moment for the constitutional liberty of his country. In 1786, Sprengtporten submitted to the Empress a précis d'un tableau sur l'équilibre du Nord, considéré dans le projet de rendre la Finlande indépendante, and this document is still to be found in the Russian archives, bearing the approving endorsement of Catherine. A somewhat inconclusive correspondence followed, and the conspiracy came to nothing, but when the war began two years later, the Empress followed the policy of Elizabeth as regards Finland. The negotiations were submitted by her to the Russian State Council, and fully approved by that body, and a minute was drawn up, assuring the Finlanders that they might rest assured of Her Majesty's gracious protection, and further that, if they really wish as soon as possible to put an end to the miseries of war, and to come into the enjoyment of peace, and of the independence they are longing for, they must, by means of persuasion or otherwise, prevail upon the Swedish army to leave Finland. They must convoke their own diet, declare themselves independent, frame such laws as the estates themselves may recognise as conducive to the welfare of the country, by the means of a new form of government, independent of all save God alone. That Her Majesty will solemnly and forever confirm all their resolutions, and that if the Swedish king, and his army oppose their attempts at independence, the Empress will order her army to support all of those who love their country. The bulk of the people, however, showed no desire to take advantage of this offer, and the advances of Catherine remained for the moment as resultless of those of Elizabeth. But the end was drawing near, and in 1808, to anticipate a little, a war was once more inaugurated by the assurances of Finnish liberty. 
When General Buxhoveden in that year crossed the Finnish frontier without a declaration of war, he issued a proclamation in the name of Alexander I, adjuring his good friends and men of Finland to remain quiet and to fear not, because the Russians did not come as enemies, but as friends and protectors. Alexander and Napoleon, the people of Finland were told, were allied in the sacred task of securing to Europe that peace which was menaced by Sweden and England, for, says this interesting document, his present Swedish majesty, so far from joining his imperial majesty in his exertions to restore the tranquillity of Europe, which alone can be effected by the coalition which so fortunately has been formed by the most powerful states, has on the contrary formed a closer alliance with the enemy of tranquillity and peace, whose oppressive system and unwarrantable conduct towards his imperial majesty and his nearest ally, his imperial majesty cannot by any means look upon with indifference. Nor was the constitutional point forgotten, for should circumstances arise to require an amicable discussion and deliberation, in that case you are requested to send your deputies, chosen in the usual manner, to Orbo, in order to deliberate upon the subject, and adopt such measures as the welfare of the country shall require. It is not suggested, of course, that the attempts of Elizabeth and Catherine to seduce the Finnish people from their ancient allegiance to Sweden, offers made and not accepted, or even General Buxhoveden's proclamation, issued on the eve of the final campaign, are of any validity in the argument now going on between Helsingfors and St. Petersburg, as to the strict constitutional meaning and effect of the compact between the Tsar and the estates at Borgo. They are, however, altogether destructive of the Russian argument that when Alexander recognised and promised to maintain the constitutional liberties, the religion, and the national existence of Finland, he attempted something so unheard of, so un-Russian, that it is quite incredible. To do such a thing, says M. Auden, would have been to renounce his faith, to act against his sacred duty to Russia, a duty at his coronation he had solemnly acknowledged before the face of God. Russian writers are either ignorant of the history of Elizabeth and Catherine, or they count too much on the ignorance of Europe when they talk like this. To represent Alexander's act in carrying out the policy that recommended itself to his predecessors as either a mere piece of sentimental insincerity, meant to tickle the ears of the Borgod Diet, or as an act of treason to Russia, is absurd in the face of the facts. Conscious, perhaps, of the weakness of this argument, which indeed is an insult to the memory of a monarch who, whatever his political and diplomatic vacillations, never broke his word. The Findeverers, as this class of writer has come to be called, are driven back on the assertion that since Alexander was a truthful man, and since the assurance was one which it was impossible for him, as an autocrat and a good Russian to give, it is, in the material points, a Finnish forgery. The clever Finns, it appears, took advantage of the Tsar's ignorance of Swedish to falsify the documents, and so to distort his meaning. This question of phraseology will be dealt with later on, but, as the most emphatic pledges were drawn up in French, and were uttered by the Tsar himself, the argument seems to lack point. It is only mentioned here in order to give some idea of the straits to which the Russian nationalist press has been reduced in its efforts to discover arguments to justify the emperor in depriving Finland of its constitution. It was the Napoleonic upheaval in Europe that enabled Alexander to carry out the policy meditated by so many of his predecessors. His father Paul, in the few years of power that were permitted him, ended by coming entirely under the influence of Napoleon, who flattered his vanity by visions of a great empire in the East. And before his nobles had put an end to his follies, the Tsar had dispatched an expedition to raise Central Asia as a preliminary to the conquest of India. Alexander, when placed on the throne by the murderers of his father, promptly recalled this expedition, and for a few years he remained undecided as to his policy. His interference in the defence of Austria and Prussia 
only served to involve him in the disasters of Austerlitz, Eilau, and Friedland. And, at the meeting at Tilsit in 1807, Napoleon succeeded, temporarily at least, in persuading him that alliance with France was Russia's best policy, but Alexander had no idea of following in his father's footsteps. He was no doubt flattered, as Paul had been, with the idea of a vast Eurasian continent, ruled by France in the west and by Russia in the east. But he was content to take it in instalments, and he showed himself very lukewarm towards the project of the conquest of India by a Franco-Russian expedition. To abandon Austria and Prussia, whose case seemed hopeless, was, however, a small matter, and the gain of Finland in the north and a free hand against Turkey in the south were real and substantial concessions. England was not long in gaining intelligence of the secret articles of the Treaty of Tilsit concerning Finland and Denmark, and Sweden was promptly warned of the attack that had been arranged and of its aim. But Gustavus IV was incapable alike of taking advice and of forming plans for himself. Early in February 1808, Count Klingspor was dispatched to take a command in Sweden, armed with a vague and discouraging series of instructions that openly pointed to retreat. And before the end of the month, the Russian general Buxhoveden had already crossed the frontier, a hostile step which was accompanied by a declaration in which Alexander threw all the blame on England and assured his royal brother-in-law that while nothing could be more painful to him than to see a rupture between Sweden and Russia, he could not permit the relations of the two countries to remain any longer in uncertainty. The proceedings that followed scarcely deserve the name of war, so far as the Swedish army was concerned. General Klingspor, fortified by his instructions, was ever for a treat. Before the end of March, Orbor had fallen, and in April, Sveborg, a fortress which in capable hands was impregnable, was treacherously surrendered. But when the Swedes had retreated in the south, the real Finnish resistance continued among the lakes and hills of the north. At Sea Kayoki, the Russians had early in the contest received a decided check, and encouraged by this, the Finlanders began everywhere to make head against the invaders. The disgrace that the capitulation of Sveborg had attached to the Finnish and Swedish arms, says Professor Danielson, was washed away in the blood at Revelax. Pulkila, Lapo, Alavo, and a number of other battles which the Finns have the more cause to think of with pride, because their fathers fought most of them alone, without the assistance from Sweden, and in spite of the utter incapacity of the commander whom the Swedish king had given them. This heroic resistance of the Finns, although useless for the purpose of shaking off the overwhelming Russian forces, was yet, as we shall see, not without its political effects. There were two marked currents of opinion at the Russian court as to the future of Finland, and the emperor, for a time, wavered. The French alliance, the disappearance of Poland, and the decadence of Sweden had enormously strengthened Russia, and some of the officials, regardless of the recorded policy of Catherine, were in favour of the simple incorporation of Finland as a province of the empire. In more than one of the early proclamations, the word province is in fact used, accompanied, as in the case of Buxhoveden's February Manifesto, already referred to, by promises as to a diet, and, in that of Emperor Alexander, issued on June 5th, by the pledges that the old statuses and privileges of the country would be maintained. Napoleon, and Europe generally, had also been notified of the annexation of Finland. But, as the summer of 1808 went on, Alexander found himself in danger of drifting into the position of the hunter who sold the skin before killing the bear. His armies were losing rather than gaining ground in the north of Finland, where the constant risings of the Finnish peasants harassed the Russians. Two-thirds of the country was held by Finnish troops, and there was a danger that Sweden might wake up even at the eleventh hour and secure supremacy at sea, owing to the aid of the British fleet, land an army in the Russian rear, and cut off connection with St. Petersburg. Besides, Alexander wanted all his strength for the attack on Turkey, which was the second item in the Tilsit programme. 
And, as differences were already beginning to show themselves between France and Russia, differences that afterwards led to such tremendous results, the Tsar naturally wished to gather what advantages he could from the Entente before the storm burst. Napoleon had not yet taken to calling him Segrech du Bach Empire, but at Erfurt the tension had begun to be felt. Meanwhile, Alexander's wiser advisers were urging him on the step that would at once put an end to the Finnish resistance and set free his armies, the simple recognition of the constitutional rights of the Finnish people. Several Finlanders had his ear. The veteran conspirator Sprengtporten, of whom we have already heard in Catherine's time, most of all, and they were able to assure him that the actions of Gustavus had finally alienated the Finlanders, and that if the people were guaranteed their political and religious rights, as had been promised by Catherine, they would submit. We know too from many sources that at this time, and for some years later, Alexander was personally favourable to liberal institutions, and there is on record a conversation with Madame de Stael, in which he discussed the possibility of granting constitutional government even to Russia. Till the middle of October 1808, Alexander was fully engaged with Napoleon at Erfurt, but on his return to St. Petersburg, he determined to take Finland in hand and come to a settlement. General Buxhoveden, the Russian commander, had already been directed to arrange for the attendance of a body of Finnish representatives at St. Petersburg to consult as to the future government of the country, but the Finns were not slow to point out that an irregularly chosen deputation of nobles, clergy, burghers and peasants meeting in the Russian capital with no properly defined powers, and while Russian troops were still at war with Finnish peasants, was far from corresponding to the Diet, Riksdag, at Orbor, which had been promised in the proclamation of February 18, when they had been invited to send deputies, chosen in the usual manner, to deliberate and adopt such measures as the welfare of the country shall require. Difficulties arose in the way of securing delegates for such a dubious errand, but ultimately General Boxhoveden explained that the proposed gathering was not to be regarded as a diet, but simply a deputation to the Tsar to explain to him what should be best done for the benefit of the country in its present situation. The deputation met in St. Petersburg on November 12th, 1808, Baron Mannerheim being elected president. Mannerheim had originally been in Swedish service, had taken part in the Anjala conspiracy with Sprengtporten and the others, and had been condemned to death at the age of thirty. Pardoned by the king, he had retired to his estate near Orbor. The allegiance of public men set very lightly on them at that time in Sweden, and Mannerheim was involved in no discredit for his condemnation, least of all in Finland and he fully justified his choice as president of the deputation. In accordance with the instructions received at his election in Orbor, he opened the first sitting by reminding the delegates that they were not properly constituted as a diet, and had no power to pass laws or vote taxes. When, on November 30th, the deputation were received by Alexander, Mannerheim, as their talman or speaker, pointed out that the people of Finland were a free nation, subject to their own laws, and he thanked the Tsar for his promise to respect their religion, their laws, their liberties, and their rights. On the following day a memorial was presented, in which it was asked that a legal diet, a general meeting of the estates of the land, should be summoned in Finland. On January 7th, 1809, a favourable reply was received, and on January 20th a decree was signed by the Emperor calling a diet at Borgo. In this document, the Tsar formally recognises the diet as the proper constitutional organ for deciding the fate of Finland. His decision, he states, is taken conformément au constitution de pays, and the representatives of the estates are summoned to meet de la manière prescrite dans les règlements de diète. The magnanimous philanthropist, said Mannerheim afterward, in writing of this critical moment, subsequently mentioned that he considered it an honour to rule over a free people with laws of its own. It is necessary to go with some minuteness into the details of this Borg at Diet of 1809, for everything that has happened since in Finland turns on it. 
To European readers, some of the details may seem unnecessary, as the thing speaks for itself. But Russian writers, those of the class at any rate, who have been employed during the present decade to prove that there is no Finnish constitution, have shown themselves, to say the least, so obtuse in their attempts to comprehend or to explain institutions altogether foreign to their ways of thinking, and have been so childishly anxious to fix here or there on some word, generally misunderstood, which seems to support their contention that the documents must be followed step by step. These documents are singularly complete, and are all accessible either in the originals, in various official reprints, or in the volumes issued by the Swedish Literary Society in Finland. Which body reproduced the minutes of the meetings of the four estates, and the correspondence of the officials with each other, and with the emperor? The documents are variously in French, Swedish, and Russian, and a favourite device of the critics is to fix upon some Russian phrase, and to argue that the Swedish interpreter has failed to convey its exact meaning in his translation. This is then denounced as a Finnish forgery. Professor Danielson of Helsingfors, who has an exhaustive knowledge of both the Russian and the Finnish archives, has no difficulty in showing the wonderful discoveries of M. Auden and his colleagues are mere mare's nests, and that the alleged discrepancies do not exist. The Emperor Alexander possessed a nice literary style, and the first drafts of his proclamations and speeches were often severely edited by himself, the emendations and corrections in some cases almost obliterating the original text. It is only natural under the circumstances that his secretaries were sometimes puzzled, and it is probable in one case at least, as will appear further on, the Russian draft was altered after the Swedish translation had been made, but the idea that a long series of historical events recorded in a voluminous collection of documents, all pointing to one irrefragable conclusion, can be nullified by unimportant variations in the renderings into three languages by such words as prince, constitution, or law, is surely a grotesque perversion of all constitutional jurisprudence. The difficulty is that in dealing with constitutional government, the Russians seem neither to understand the word nor the thing, and Finland suffers because Russia and Russian thought have not kept abreast of Europe. End of section 2finland and the czars 1809-1899 by joseph robert fisher this librivox recording is in the public domain read by alistair chapter three a diet summoned finnish resistance being practically at an end alexander proceeded to act in accordance with his expressed wish to rule the finnish people as a free nation in accordance with their constitution, and not by force. Count Buxhoveden, who had hitherto controlled the country in his capacity of commander-in-chief of the Russian armies, was recalled, and Sprengtporten was appointed first civil governor of Finland. This Sprengtporten is a highly interesting and characteristic 18th century type, politician, conspirator, colonel of dragoons, governor. He was always a striking and showy figure, although perhaps too much of the freelance and adventurous citizen of the world, to be appreciated by the sober 19th century. At one time, Europe was on the verge of losing him altogether, as he volunteered for service in the American War of Independence, where he might have become another Lafayette, but he quarrelled with the American agents as to the question of his traitement, and returned to Finland. With all his many shortcomings, there is no doubt that Sprengtporten was devoted to his country and its liberties, and it is owing to his influence in St. Petersburg, more than to any other, that those liberties were so firmly established at Borgo. The other important figure at this period is that of Mikhail Speransky, a Russian statesman of great ability and organising power. He was fully trusted by the Tsar, whose tutor he had been, and over whom he had an immense influence. He had acted as Secretary of State for the Empire since the accession of Alexander in 1801, and in 1809, when the Diet was decided upon, he was appointed first Secretary of State for Finnish Affairs, with Baron Rebinder, a Finlander, also a notable figure, 
as his assistant. From the first, Sprankport, the new governor, never wavered in insisting that a full legal diet and nothing less would pacify Finland. In the memorandum which he submitted to the emperor on his appointment, he said, La Finlande est à peu près conquise par le succès de vos armes, monsieur. Il reste à conquérir les cœurs de ses habitants, qui ne sont plus que jamais aliénés. Ce n'est que par une administration équitable et juste, conforme à leur ancienne constitution, propre à cicatriser les plaies profondes que les opérations passées y ont laissées après elles, que cette conquête, si nécessaire au succès ultérieur de vos armes, peut s'effectuer. In the early days of January 1809, we find Sprinkporten and Speransky in animated correspondence as to the approaching meeting of the Diet, the impulsive governor still urging promptitude and haste on the slower-moving Russian officials. Even at this period, we notice one vital incident as showing the emperor's recognition of Finnish autonomy. Sprinkporten's original idea seems to have been that Finnish affairs should be reported on to the Tsar by his Russian ministers. Alexander himself altered this and directed that the governor-general should report to him personally and not through the Russian ministers, who had nothing to say to the Grand Duchy. In the proclamation of January 20th, Alexander had, for the first time, called himself by his new title, Grand Duke of Finland, and he was apparently determined to emphasise the distinction between his functions as an autocrat in Russia and a constitutional ruler in Finland. Later on, when the Secretary and Council for Finland were set to work, the separation between Russian affairs and Finnish became still more striking. One of the first things necessary before the Emperor of Russia could finally and formally pledge himself to respect and maintain the constitution and laws of Finland was that he should know in fuller detail what the constitution and those laws were. So obvious is this that one of the favourite devices of the less instructed Russian controversialists in endeavouring to explain away the solemn pledges given by Alexander at Borgo in March 1809 is to assert that the Tsar knew nothing of the Swedish laws on which the Finnish writers base their case, that he had only to deal with Finland, and as Finland had never had a separate existence or a separate constitution, he can only have referred in his speeches and proclamations to such ordinary things as civil and criminal laws, and the laws affecting property and personal rights. It will not be disputed, of course, that everything could not remain literally the same in Finland after its union with Russia as before. The Grand Duke was to be an emperor instead of a king. The new sovereign was the head of the Catholic Apostolic Orthodox Church, whereas the former king was necessarily a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. The machinery of government would no longer be centred in Stockholm, but in Orbo. There would no longer be an imperial diet, Riksdag, but a local diet, Landtag. The Supreme Court would no longer be in Stockholm, but in the Finnish capital, and so forth. Naturally, however, these very obvious points were apparent to Alexander and his advisers, and the Tsar had had abstracts of the Swedish constitutional laws prepared and submitted to him in advance, and at his own request, as a necessary preliminary to the erection of Finland into a separate constitutional unit. In December 1808, the Russian Foreign Secretary, Count Soltikov, wrote to Baron Mannerheim, making inquiries, and in reply the President of the Finnish Deputation gave him a short sketch of the respective rights under the Swedish Constitution of the monarch and of the estates, and also of the ceremonies and proceedings usual at the Swedish Diets. One short citation from Mannerheim's memorandum will serve to show that the Emperor, before he summoned the first Finnish Diet, was made plainly aware of the privileges of that body, and of the limitations the constitution would set on his acts, and also of the distinction between fundamental or constitutional laws, and the civil and criminal law of the land. Under the Swedish law, says Mannerheim, The sovereign can make no change, ne plus rien changer, in the fundamental laws, nor in the criminal and civil laws, established in 1734 nor in the privileges of each order, nor established new taxes without the consent of the estates. But the emperor did not content himself with this memorandum on such an important subject. He had further prepared for him 
through the Office of the Secretary of State for Finland, a full report on the Swedish constitution. Count Speransky, as a Russian, was not himself capable of preparing such a report, so he delegated the work to his assistant, Rebinder, who in turn called in the aid of Monsieur de Buck, who, although not a Russian, appears to have been an official of the Russian Foreign Office. Governor Sprengtporten, writing to Speransky, speaks thus of Buck, Il s'est fait une étude particulière de la constitution politique de la Suède. Cet homme sera vraiment un trésor pour vous, si vous parvenez à l'attacher à votre département. Ensuite, à la fois des usages de la Russie et des lois de la Suède, qui sont communes pour la Finlande, possédant la langue au fond et le russe passablement, il renie plusieurs qualités nécessaires à un pareil emploi. A few extracts from the reports of Raybinder and Buck will serve to show how fully the Tsar was instructed in the limitations of his new dignity. Les états du royaume de Suède, Brixenstander, explains Buck, sont composés de quatre ordres, savoir celui de la noblesse, du clergé, des bourgeois et des paysans, et tous les objets devant être débattus par chaque ordre. Aucun point dont la diète aura eu à délibérer ne peut être sanctionné par le souverain à moins que la pluralité, ou trois ordres, ne l'ait adopté. Mais tout objet d'impôt ou de contribution personnelle ou territoriale ne peut être adopté qu'au consentement des quatre ordres. But even those Russian writers who have had the wisdom not to fall into the trap about the Tsar's supposed ignorance of the general constitutional law in its outline vehemently protest that the cunning Finns, at quite a recent date, have dragged in two special laws, those of 1772 and 1789, of which Alexander never heard, and which consequently he never promised to observe. Even if the laws objected to had never existed, it would hardly help Russia, for these two great constitutional statutes, the form of government, Regerings Furman of August 21st, 1772, and the Acts of Union and Security, Furenings Oksakerhertzakten, of February 21st and April 3rd, 1789, so far from constituting a furtive extension of the rights of the estates, involve a limitation of those rights, and a restoration of the power of the sovereign which had fallen into abeyance since the death of Charles Twelfth, when the nobles had secured the upper hand and had turned his successors into something resembling raffinion. The whole question of the repeated applications of those fundamental statutes will come up in its proper historical place later on. It is only necessary here to point out that Monsoir Rebender expressly mentions the Act of 1789, and directs his master's attention to the events of 1772, out of which the act of that year sprung. The extract from Monsoir Rebender's report, in which the constitution of Finland is explained, is of considerable length, but every word is of importance. La Finlande, depuis les temps les plus reculés et renis à la Suède, a été gouvernée d'après ses lois tant fondamentales que civiles. Les premières se fondent principalement sur trois principes. 1. Que le pays soit gouverné par un roi assujetti aux lois. 2. Que tous les citoyens sans exception soient libres ainsi que protégés tant à la vie qu'à leur propriété. 3. Que la nation, moyennant ses représentants, a le droit de faire sa constitution, dicter les lois et stipuler les contributions du pays. Le droit du roi est celui de pourvoir à tous les offices de telles places ou charges qui demandent une certaine confiance et qui sont de conséquence à la disposition immédiate du roi, qui en même temps a le pouvoir d'en démettre sans formalité ceux qui manquent à leur devoir et par là ont perdu la confiance en eux mise. Pour toutes les autres places, trois personnes les plus habiles sont présentées dont le roi en choisira un, le mûrera de son brevet. Ceux-ci ne peuvent être changés sans avoir subi le procès et été jugés en forme. Plus, le roi est à la disposition des revenus de l'État et fixe les salaires de chaque place, ainsi que certaines taxes, c'est-à-dire la poste, les papiers d'embrais, etc. Mais tous les autres impôts dépendent, comme su dit, des États, 
que le roi ait seulement le droit de rassembler pour une diète, où il leur présente les matières dont ils souhaitent leur avis, et au-dessus de quoi ils n'ont pas le droit d'étendre leur délibération. Pourtant, il est à eux préservé de demander le consentement du roi d'entreprendre matière quelconque qu'il juge absolument nécessaire pour le bien du pays, ce qui peut leur être affirmé ou nié, suivant l'opinion du roi. Aussi, dépendent-ils du roi de finir la diète quand bon lui semble. Si devant les États s'assemblèrent chaque troisième année, et même plus souvent, et avaient des droits bien plus larges qu'à présent, mais depuis le changement de régence de 1772 et l'acte de sûreté en 1789, ils sont restreints aux circonstances ci-dessus nommées. Being then fully informed as to the nature of the constitutional rights which he proposed to recognize and to confirm, Alexander went on with his preparations for the Borogadiad. In the original manifesto of January 15, 1809, it had been summoned for March 10th, but the distances were considerable, and it was impossible to make the proclamation known and to assemble the representatives within the time named so there was a short postponement, the emperor not arriving in Borga until March 15th. Borga was doubtless chosen instead of the capital Orbo on account of its nearness to St. Petersburg, and in order to save the time that would be wasted by the emperor in travelling to and fro. Possibly the fact that Orbo was situated in one of the most Swedish parts of Finland and exceptionally subject to the official or personal influence from Stockholm, may have weighed with the Tsar and his advisers. Levissa, a town still nearer to the Russian frontier, had at first been chosen, but afterwards abandoned in favour of Borga. One important matter to recollect in connection with what was now to happen in Borga is that, a fortnight before the Diet even met, even the Swedish subjects of Gustavus IV finally lost all patience with his exhibitions of misgovernment and incapacity, and he was deposed and shipped over to Germany. The reluctance which many loyal Finlanders had hitherto felt to forswear their hereditary allegiance was thus at an end, and Finland was placed in a position freely to arrange its own future without any qualms of conscience as to oath-breaking. End of section 3